This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. My guest today is my friend, Mike Glover of Fieldcraft Survival. And Mike had an incredible career in the military, uh, most of that spent in special operations, and then got out, worked for something called Other Government Agencies, and then started Fieldcraft Survival, which is based here in Utah, down in Heber. So uh, we talked about a ton of things, his time in the military, preparedness, uh, our love of books, especially classic books on terrorism, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies uh, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and books on, uh, on the military that helped us down the path. So without further ado, Mike Lover. All right, I'm joined today by Mike Lover, former Army Special Forces and OGA, other government agency, which we might talk a little bit about, and now the founder of Fieldcraft Survival, which is based here in Heber, Utah, which is awesome. I'm so glad you guys moved from Arizona up here. I'm fired up that, that we are neighbors and we get to do some cool things together here going forward. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me on, man. It's an honor and privilege, and I'm, I'm happy to be in the neighborhood. It's awesome being Awesome. Yeah, no, it's such a great, great spot. And uh, yeah, for, for you guys coming from Prescott, Arizona, which is a, is a cool spot too, but a little harder to harder to get to. It's, uh, it's nice. We have Salt Lake Airport here. People can fly in and zip on up and then they can see you and maybe do some other things like uh, go to Sundance, go to uh, any of these mountains here to ski or, or do whatever else. So it's a cool, a good spot. Good spot for you guys. But uh, yeah, dude, I want to start off uh, by going into a little bit of background because uh, some people may not have heard Andy Stump's podcast with you on Cleared Hot, but uh, you guys go deep into into background. But I really want to talk to you about uh, what you're doing now with Fieldcraft, because I think it's awesome. I love when guys get out of government service, law enforcement, uh, firefighters, whatever it is, and find that next passion in life, find that next mission, and and move on. But uh, but you had how many years did you do military? So I did a total of 18 years. Um, I did 16 active and then a couple years as a uh, guard reserve component guy in 19th Special Forces Group. Okay. And then uh, did you know always growing? Because I've seen your library at, at headquarters at uh, Fieldcraft Survival World Headquarters, and I love that library. There's awesome stuff in there. There's classic books on terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. There's old magazine articles from the 70s and 80s, the same things that I grew up reading. Um, so did you were you reading all that stuff growing up, or did you uh, come back to it later and uh, and do some more research into uh, the history and perspectives of what people were thinking about terrorism and insurgencies uh, post-Vietnam through the 80s into the 90s. Did you come back to it or did you read all that stuff growing up? Yeah, I, I grew up with books. I mean, that like you back then, obviously, we didn't have a lot of uh, internet virtual interactions. So everything that we did was on print. And so I grew up reading like John Plaster's SOG uh, Secret Commandos, all, all these books on MACV, Special Operations guys in Vietnam. And then I'm, I actually have more of my books I set up, which is important to me. Um, I'm always surrounded by that. But in the military growing up, um, you know, if we were in the field, we didn't have cell phones. If we were, you know, even downrange, we had limited access. So having a book, I, I think everywhere I went, I had a book in my cargo pocket or a book on my nightstand and was reading something. So I've accumulated probably thousands of books that I'm surrounded with even right now that are just everything from uh, historical references to war 
combat strategy um, and even things that I personally enjoy. Yeah, no, I love that when you post. Uh, so it's Mike A. Glover on Instagram. Uh, you can go there, and then Fieldcraft Survival has a bunch of different ones. But I love when you take pictures and the, or video of those old books, and then you have maybe something else on there, like an old uh, a sextant or a compass or something there. And it's just I, I love that stuff because it's a lot similar to how I have things set up here at uh, at the house. And by the way, one time at some point we're going to do this in person. Uh, right now we're in a, a transitional phase as we're uh, looking for our next house here in uh, in Utah. So uh, I'm in a, a temporary studio is the best way to put it but uh we'll get together and do one of these in, in person because those are so much so much more fun and we are doing something in person soon i think i'm, I'm working it out with you guys uh on date wise but end of april i think we're going to do something cool down at fieldcraft survival hq yeah i'm thinking like um you know obviously a book signing the new book um devil's hand is going to be really cool to see people come out and and book sign it's so i always thought it was real cool in fact I just recently did it. I have it right here, actually. Um, this book, uh, "Not a Good Day to Die," by Sean Naylor. He's a yeah. he's a, and I I because I, I don't you know realize a lot of the books that I have, but uh, he personally autographed this for me because he went to the uh, PX on Fort Bragg, uh, and it says to Mike Glover with great respect and deep gratitude for your service um, during this very challenging period of our history in our nation, Dale Presso Lee Bear, Sean Naylor, and he puts March 1805. Uh, because, you know, this this book, I have a lot of buddies from this book uh, about uh, the initial uh, operation Anaconda early on in the global war on terror. And he signed that for me. I remember meeting him, but I didn't realize how long ago it was, 16 years ago. But I think when people tie like the personal story of like meeting you and then the experiences of that book, I think it's super cool. And then having the ability to Q&A and just ask, ask you questions. I know for me, uh, who's a big reader uh, and junkie when it comes to books, that would be super cool to be able to experience that with you. Uh, and I, I think people are going to come from afar to be able to come out and see it. And I think that'd be really cool to do. Point B, uh, also, people came from a long way away to your opening that you did last month. Like you did the grand opening at uh here in heber and i i pulled in and i'm in my land cruiser and we have some people same people that follow that follow you follow me as well and immediately i was walking across the parking lot and people are asking me to sign you know magazine m4 magazines and glock magazines and stuff and i walk in and people came from all over it was amazing people came from all over the country which is really cool and it speaks to uh to what you've been able to build and what you're doing and how you connect with people because you know there's a lot of different companies out there doing training and things like that but you have this uh, this following, this you built this trust um, with a very engaged group of people that uh, that that want to make themselves more self reliant and uh, and their families more more self reliant. So that was so cool to see, and that place was amazing. I mean, that was an incredible. Uh, people came from everywhere. So that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that was totally unexpected as well because I, you know, we we could bring people together. It's something that we've been doing from the very beginning because. Um, like I don't, it's weird because I don't think about business when it comes to those kind of things, because I want people to feel, um, included in the conversation. And a lot of our references for, for education are free. I mean, it's podcasts, it's, it's articles, it's uh, YouTube videos. So when we bring people together like that, I always like to see people coming together for like a common good. Um, cause there's so many divisive things in the world that we could be ripped apart. And I, I always look at preparedness as a way, like a conduit to bring people together. 
And it was so cool to see because people did travel, I mean, from all over the United States to come to that grand opening. Uh, we had, uh, we tracked over 400 people coming and going, a whole bunch of people signed the guest book. And then the fact that you, uh, Neil from Ready Gunner, Casey, his wife, uh, Sean Whalen, uh, just dropped in to say hello, meant a lot. And it was really cool as an experience because I think people follow you on social media. They follow me on social media, but to be able to interact in person and go, oh, this is, wait, this is happening. This is real. is super cool for people. Yeah, no, that was it. The energy was amazing. It was just a, what a great community of people. So that was, that was really cool to see. So hopping back to some of these books. So I grabbed a couple off my shelf real quick because we talked about one of these earlier on, but, uh, so I have those same ones, like this thing right here. I think this one's 1987. I mean, you can just see, you know, the, the artwork and everything else is in here and, uh, I have some things highlighted. So I love going back and, and looking at this stuff as I'm doing research. This one's, I think 1980 right here. Uh, another one right here, but going back and seeing what the perspective was on terrorism with that pre 9-11 paradigm. Uh, this one right here, I think it's 1978 or 76 or something like that. But I have this collection in here. So uh, as I'm doing my research, I don't have to just get online and you know go with whatever pops up first because there's a lot going on. It's I can say, okay, what was going on back then? If I need to get in the head of a character that's a certain age that came up during a certain time, what were they studying? What was their experience? So, uh, so I love that. And I love that, that your library is just down the road in case I run out of things. Here and when last time we were together, we talked about remember Hans Halberstadt. We talked about him. So I found my old books. <laughs> I found my old ones, and I think the first one I read was this one. Was that one right there? Was uh, Green Berets right there? And uh, I remember going through this, and it was oh man, this was so awesome. I went. I read this thing so many times in high school. Like I think I, I think I got this when I was a freshman, maybe maybe a sophomore. But I remember looking at these photos, reading the Vietnam parts, looking at the weapons, uh, what was hinted at, the training, all this. It was just, you know, I love this thing. So this was a huge, had a huge impact on me. And then this thing came out. Bam. Look at that right there. Seals. So I'm looking at this thing and I, I was already on that path, but I was like, oh man, he did this. How do you, how do you get, look, let's slip the frogs of war. It says, I mean, like, Awesome. When you're reading this, when you're like, you know, 16, I don't mean 15, whatever it was. Uh, awesome. And the, the photos. And then you, now I know some of these guys, like some of these guys are my buds instructors. I can, I can uh, you know, recognize them, but you know, I saw this. And so what did I do? I start putting ropes up in the backyard and try to simulate some of this stuff as I'm, as I'm training. Um, it, you know, what else are you going to do? You can't get, you can't log online and go to the internet and find out, you know, buds training, pro, training programs, but you can see this picture and be like, oh, they're holding heavy objects over their head. So what am I going to do? I'm going to hold heavy objects over my head. How long? I don't know. As long, long as I can. And then we talked about this one, too. Remember this? We talked about the SWAT one, where it gives up some... Uh, do you have it over there? Look. <laughs> Look at nice! Look at that. <laughs> awesome. The Power Series. You know, I don't know what year this one came out, but uh, I want to reread this one, because when we were talking the other day, uh, I think this is the one that you mentioned that had... Uh, uh, let something slip in here. Let's, there's something in here that uh, maybe shouldn't have been in here. It was the first time it was mentioned, something about, you know, Delta or something or other that uh, did, didn't make it into the other books. <laughs> there's three things that you're not supposed to talk about that I got in a classified brief <laughs> in one paragraph in this book. And yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This guy had some good access for back then. You know, you got you got to do some cool stuff. I don't know if he's uh, he's still around or still writing. I have two other books of his over there on the shelf. But you know, things like that that was powerful back in the day when we were growing up. And you know, I worry 
today with, with my kids, I see that there's so many more distractions and the way they're interacting, especially during COVID is through these video games. And, you know, they're out there and I can hear our, our little guy and I can hear him talking and laughing and I can see that he's just connected with his friends and that sort of thing. But, you know, I know eventually uh, he'll be connected outside of that whole world is going to be open to him as soon as he figures his way around these parental controls. Um, but I don't see kids in stuff like this today. Yeah. So when people, you know, kind of ask me what like the modern day equivalent of this is, is people following, you know, following you, uh, is making wise decisions uh, about who to follow on social media, because they're probably not going to go back. And there's probably not a slew of kids that are reading these books today, because there are so many other distractions out there. Um, and they have so much bandwidth, and, and it's going to be allocated to a bunch of different things where we had television, or you could ride your bike to the video store, maybe, and rent something. Uh, or you could read read a book, or you could go climb a tree. Like that's uh, that's it. Or maybe Atari twenty six hundred. You know, but you can only do that for so long. So uh, so today, it, that's why it's so important who you follow and and who you like what those people put out because that's the equivalent of going through this book time and time again. So yeah, if you have a, if you're following somebody and they have. Yeah, they talk about different weapon systems or whatever, and then they do it again the next week. Well, guess what? I was going to this thing and reading it over and over and over again. Yeah, that's the equivalent of seeing a, a, a similar post or, or whatever else. But uh, I think that's really the modern day equivalent. So it's important uh, that you're out there doing what you're doing, and and, uh, and I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, I I appreciate that. I, you know, for us, it was more of like an analog experience to like touch and feel, and it was like a tangible thing. And, and we just appreciated it more because we didn't have the access to so much. I mean, like you took one picture, you cut it out, you put it on your wall, you you read every word 10 times, and then you referenced it every time you were thinking about it. But now you have so much access to information, it almost seems overwhelming. And I, I like to slow things down and, and have the long-form conversation when it comes to things like this. And I think you're absolutely right. You, you could you could completely find the wrong things that just lead you down a rabbit hole. That's not going to be, you know, it's not going to allow you to be productive and, and find a lot of value in things. I mean, that this is that this is our dopamine hit, but this is like the slow burn. Version. <laughs> exactly. And then you go back the next day for your next hit for a little, uh, little inspiration to, you know, to get out there and keep going down the path. Uh, Cause there weren't that, but you had to search that out. Like that just didn't come to you. Uh, you had to actually, take some initiative and go figure out where to get these books, like with Pollard and Press or something. I think that a lot of these things came from back in the day. Um, but you had to search that out. You know, most people didn't. If they, they didn't have a uh, someone in the house that maybe gave them a Soldier of Fortune magazine or a gung-ho magazine back in the day, and then you see an ad for Pollard and Press and see a bunch of books on there, like Anarchist Cookbook or, you know, whatever. I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. Like, let, let's do that. Uh, hey, can someone – I remember even back in the day uh, trying to get my dad to order it through his office so that the government wouldn't find out. Out that I ordered the anarchist cookbook. Like I remember thinking about that back then. That's junior high school, you know. Uh, I still have it over there, right in the corner on the shelf over there. Um, but uh, but you had to go out and, fit and and do that. That was like that was like physical. You're taking initiative. Um, and whereas today, you're, it's like there's so many inputs that you can just sit back and whoever's that loudest that loudest voice or whatever's giving you that stimulation. Like oh, what's what's that? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go in that direction. And I, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to end up, especially, I mean, I, I think of it in terms of my, my kids, um, but it's really everybody's kids out there. Like they don't have to take the initiative to go and do this. They just have to be distracted 
by something over here and all those people and all those companies are trying to do that same thing and they're trying to get that that kid for whatever reason and get him on board early uh kind of that gateway drug to you know whatever they're trying to get him get him into whether that's a I don't know a car or whether it's an apple product or whatever else it is or an ideology um like it's it's tough out there we got to choose it's almost like the kids today they're not really getting that same choice because they're getting inundated with so much um and I'm, my hope is that they get inundated with you know guys like you guys like andy guys like jocko out there and you know they'll make these these wise choices and and follow those people, um, whether it's on a social platform or uh, via books or, or whatever else, or a training course, even more importantly, getting out there with you, with your your, your team when they're the right age, um, to say, hey, learn how to do these things, learn how to self-rescue, learn how to uh, apply a tourniquet, learn how to, how to uh, you know, operate a firearm, all, all those things that are, that are so important to being self-reliant, being your own first responder. Um, uh, yeah, that, so I'm trying, doing my best to get my kids down that path and, uh, got our daughter out hunting early. She just naturally was uh, inclined to do that without any sort of uh, uh, prompting from me. So, um, so this our, our little guy coming up though. We got we'll, we'll get him down to Fieldcraft uh, HQ here pretty soon and let him wander around and and uh, and see what you guys have going on to get him on the path. Yeah, we 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 want to do things for for kids because I think it's important. I, I, if you look at the Boy Scouts and the, even the Cub Scouts of America. Obviously, they've had some issues, and there's not really a, a good place where you could, you know, put your kids into a program and have them understand and learn about being better prepared. It's also super fun. I, I think the model for Philcraft is this idea that it doesn't have to be super burdensome or anxious. It could be something that's fun, like overlanding, for example, because we could teach survival, first aid. Um, you know, outdoor wilderness survival is super interesting because it's fun, but then you're learning something along the way. So anything that we do, we want to make interesting, especially trying to capture even people's attention, not just kids, but people's attention has become very difficult because they're so inundated with everything. I would, I always always tell people outside of like your likes and dislikes versus book versus media, at least start your little library and collection. Because when all things fail and you don't have electricity, your reference for everything, your Google at home on your shelf is, is going to be your reference for information. And I, I like to think that way because it justifies me buying cool books, but it also allows me to have like tangible words on the shelf for references for things that I want to know where, you know, in the absence of electricity, I have somewhere to go. Yeah, and not just that. Nowadays, if everything is online, that history can be changed, can be morphed. Obviously, you're seeing things in your feed that uh, are there first, second, third, fourth on that first page for a reason. Um, so I'm going back and getting in, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica is from 1955, 65, 75, 85, 95. So I have those as reference points. Um, and also, as an from an academic sense, being able to look, okay, what did this word mean in 1955, 65, 75 versus today? And when I put something in, uh, in, in the Google search bar, what pops up versus what would pop up in 1965 when I'm looking at this encyclopedia here, looking at the exact same thing. So uh, for me, it's a very interesting uh, study, just cultural study in how things are evolving uh, and how much control is really exerted by by big tech in general. Um, and that's yep. something, yeah, I think about every day. 
Is that for your writing too? Because if you're writing from a historical perspective, like from the '60s, like Cold War, you you could have that reference for what that word actually meant. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, That's- absolutely. Like I looked up direct action not too long ago, uh, and I looked, uh, and it was over the summer because I saw it being used um, in some of the civil civil unrest. And I looked up the military definition from like 1998 or something like that, whatever was in one of the books up here. Uh, it was very different from what popped up in the Google search. So that's an interesting one for people if they have a, a reference from something in the, I don't know, maybe eighties, nineties, early two thousands, and then put something in the Google search bar today, uh, just to see, Hey, how we're, how, how words are being, being used. Cause uh, the thing I say uh, more often than not is uh, precision in language reflects precision in thought. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that language can be manipulated, especially when it's, uh, it's coming up in the first page of a Google search and it's there being changed for, for a reason. So that's, for me, that's fascinating both, well, both because I have kids and, you know, as a citizen and worried about future generations, but also in my writing, also as I develop these characters and develop these conspiracies and, and all these sorts of things that I weave into the, the themes of the, of the novels. So, um, so yeah, it's, I, I encourage people to go out there and get a library, go in a physical library uh, like you do, um, because once again, the touch of a button, that stuff could be, uh, that stuff could be gone. Uh, not to mention lack of electricity, you know. Uh, yeah, but I want to go back also and talk about... Uh, your, your 18 years. Um, so it wasn't all in special forces, right? You bounced around a little bit and you did the, the tomb of the unknown. You did that for a while. Is, is that how you came in? Was that your, your intro? Yeah. So it's interesting. When I was just opening this book, I didn't even realize that I had a picture of me as a tomb guard in the nice. book that I in probably since 1997. Wow. But, like, that picture was just in this and I'm like, Oh wow. I probably should go through these books. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I joined the Army to air, be an airborne ranger. And when, when I did so, I didn't realize um, they choose your MOS as a, it's called 11 X-ray, which is um, they get to choose what 11 series you are. And infantry is the series. So they have 11 Bravo. They used to have 11 Bravos, 11 Charlies, 11 Mikes, and 11 Hotels, which are different specialties. So when I went to infantry basic training with an airborne ranger contract, um, I was supposed to go through an 11 Bravo or just think of it like an infantry guy who walks through the woods, like light infantry guy uh, pipeline. But when they segmented us in, in platoons, which there was no rhyme or reason to that, they, they literally went, okay, the first 30 guys, your first platoon, 11 Bravos, the second 30 guys, your 11 hotels. They made me an 11 hotel, which is a, an infantry guy that uses heavy um, armor and heavy uh, weapons. So basically an infantry guy that gets to ride a GMV or a Humvee at the time and use 50 cals, Mark 19s and, and heavy weapons and tow missile systems. And so at the end of basic, they were like, um, hey, the ranger instructors are coming to pick up the rangers uh, candidates to go to ranger and doctor program. And so... They came and then they went. And then I told the drill sergeant, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm supposed to be a ranger. And he said, no, you're 11 hotel. They don't have 11 hotels in ranger. And I was like, what? <laughs> 25th Infantry Division in Fort Lewis, Washington. I'm like, I have airborne ranger on my contract. And they were like, you should have told us before. It's your fault. I'm like, wow. Okay. So, you know, long story short. Uh, the only way I could change my MOS right then and there 
was if they sent me to the 3rd Infantry Regiment, which was the Old Guard. And I didn't even know what the Old Guard was. But basically they said, if you go there, we'll change your MLS. And then after two years, you put in paperwork and you go to Ranger Road, which is what they told everybody. So I went to the Old Guard and realized it, it's a ceremonial um, unit, but it also has components that are like they had a scout platoon at the time uh, that did uh, – uh, op four playing bad guys from Ranger Regiment, and they had specialty platoons like the U.S. Army drill team, the Tomb of the Unknowns. And I said, you know what? At least I'll make the best of my time. So I went to Airborne School, Ranger School, got my Tomb Identification badge, served as a, a guard of the Tomb for a couple of years, and this is all pre 9/11. And then when 9/11 kicked off, uh, I went to Special Forces Selection, and then spent the rest of my time in Special Operations. That's wild. So you didn't even know that it was a ceremonial unit. There's no, you can't Google it. And, uh, you know, hey, you get in that line, off you go. And so you didn't really know until you showed up there what, uh, what yeah. you'd be doing for the next two years, which at the time, how old are you then? You're 18, 19, 20. How old? I was 17. 17. So two years when you're 17 years old seems like forever. Like that, oh, yeah. two years, that's half of high school. Like, that's crazy yeah. at 17. Now it's like two years, you know, whatever. Just whatever that time-space continuum thing is, like, that's a real thing as uh, time going faster as you get older. But at 17, that's forever. So you show up there, you're like, man, I got to polish my boots. I have to have this haircut. I have to do this stuff. I was expecting to be jumping out of planes and, like, putting place in claymores and rocking it on these ambushes. And, uh, and, and I think at the time, we all thought we were going to go downrange and do secret stuff in the middle of the night and then, and then come back. And that was, like, what we we thought because there wasn't any you didn't know I mean, you just got everything from these books it made it seem like we we're gonna go save the world and come back and have beers you know and in real life you get to your unit and they're like hey here's a mop go clean the bathroom you're like well, what about the secret mission uh and that didn't really happen until after september 11th anyway for most of us um no there were flashpoints along the way and guys got to you know rocket in mogadishu and places like that but um but for the most part uh you know my experience and those of our contemporaries was pretty much you didn't get to do what you thought you were going to do until after September 11th. Uh, so you're there, you're polishing your shoes, you got the glasses on, you're doing your thing. Like that's a great, that's an, I mean, there's nothing else like that uh, out there. I mean, maybe the, you know, some of the Great Britain, maybe, maybe, but uh, that's pretty incredible having to do that day and day. Is that stressful having to be out there in front of a crowd? And for those that don't know, um, can you give a little rundown on, on what you're doing there and a little background on, on that? Yeah. Um, so the, the Tomb of the Unknowns, has been in Arlington National Cemetery um, since the 30s and 40s. It was actually started with the World War One unknown that was brought in the 30s. Um, and the, the idea was it would be guarded by the Army 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in uh, memorial to all of those men and women who served and died on the battlefields. And, you know, at the time, obviously, in World War One, World War II, Korea, and even Vietnam, these, these unknowns were remains that they couldn't identify. So they couldn't associate them with um, any kind of identification. So the, the original crypt, which is um, the, the big thing that's known uh, for being the Tomb of the Unknowns, underneath that crypt is the World War I unknown. In front, you have Korea, Vietnam, and World War II. And that's been guarded by the Army since 1948, 24 hours a day. Uh, the 3rd Infantry Regiment, which is the oldest infantry regiment in the Army, has guarded that. And so to be a tomb guard, you have to go, you have to try out. Um, you have to go through uh, about seven to nine months of training. 
you get your team identification badge, which behind the astronaut's badge is the rarest badge in the military. And at the time, I was badge holder 470. So I was wow. 170th person to be awarded the badge since 1948. And then since then, there's only been a couple hundred added to that. It's three release based on height. Uh, I'm 6'1", so anywhere from six foot to 6'2". Uh, second release, 6'2 to 6'4", and uh, first relief is 6'4 and above. And we rotate in a fireman schedule to guard that rain, snow, sleet, or heat uh, in Arlington Cemetery 24 hours a day. It's it's something that uh, was a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. And, and to be honest, the, the most difficult thing I've done, I mean, I've been to Ranger School, different special operations selections, a whole bunch of training, and to seven to nine months of being perfect for your uniform. Uh, I actually pulled it up yesterday when I was cleaning my stuff out. Uh, you have to memorize 27 pages of knowledge verbatim. Um, you have to be like perfect in every way to be able to guard the tomb. And it has to be uh, continuously. And it was a super interesting duty, uh, a privilege for me to, to guard that. But it's kicked off my career in the right direction because it set me up for discipline understanding really about selfless service. Um, and, and yeah, man, it, it was stressful. It was an 18-year-old coming on to guard the tomb and having 2,000 people observe your every movement uh, was was pressure. That was real pressure. It's, it's stressful to watch. I've, I've been there and I've seen it. It's stressful to watch because you're like, oh, you know, I hope this doesn't you know, drop this or like, uh, uh, it's just, it's crazy to see. And, and how long are those shifts, like changing of the guard? How long are you out there before you do the changing, changing the guard? So the summertime, it's every 30 minutes oh, wow. on average, do seven to nine walks. The guard change itself is about six to seven minutes. So what happens is you, you rotate. You do a guard change, you come back downstairs, and you only have 20 minutes, so you never get out of uniform. You kind of just get a reset, square your stuff back away, and then you go back up again, and you'll do uh, anywhere from six to eight walks per day in the summer. You know, you can on that plaza, which is all concrete, you could have, you know, 100-plus degree temperatures, and you're in a wool dress blues uniform. And then during the wintertime, it's every hour on the hour. And then – um you know, we're in blues the entire time. And then at nighttime, we, we do go to battle dress uniform and we guard in a roving patrol around the, the tomb of the end of the night. Jeez, that is wild. So, so, so when you go downstairs, you're not like cracking a beer, putting your feet up, watching TV. Like you're making sure you're ready to go again in 30 minutes. No breaks. Let me show you something real quick that your, your guests right big. That is wild. So I found this yesterday when I was going through my stuff. So this is a ribbon that was on the uh, U.S. Naval. It was actually, so here's a story. It was actually um, uh, transported uh, and accompanied on a wreath, the World War I unknown soldier from France. Wow. This actual ribbon was presented to the U.S. Naval Hospital in 1936. Dang. Um, and this came across the ocean in, in uh, 1920s with the World War I unknown. So this, I mean, this is a piece of history. I found this Department of the Navy letter Whoa. with a certificate. It says, um, and, and Mr. Metzler, who was the Arlington National Cemetery historian, who since has passed, but he says, uh, I am proud to deliver this important 
piece of history for display in the museum at Arlington. As indicated, this ribbon was presented with flowers which accompanied the World War I unknown soldier from France. The frame ribbon was presented to the U.S. Naval Hospital in 1936 and was disestablished in 1991. It was transferred to the medical clinic in Philadelphia. And, and what's crazy is this was given to me by the Arlington National Cemetery historian, Mr. Metzler. Um, I found it in a basement at the Tomb of the Unknowns in the Catacombs, uh, which is an underground place where we stage. And I asked him, I said, hey, what is this? And he goes, oh, I don't, let me take a look. And he looked at it and he goes, uh, I don't know if you want it, you can take it. And I'm like, it was in a box collecting dust. And I, you know, I feel obligated like to give this to a museum or something. I've been, I've actually contacted a few, um, but you know, I, I'm holding on to it right now. But it's, it's a piece of history that accompanied the World War One unknown. It's insane. That's amazing. I mean, imagine what else is out there in a box somewhere. I mean, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark going down, you know, thing at the end. Like, what are in those boxes? But just in some dusty attic somewhere, or somebody like you that went home and has this thing, doesn't even know what they what they have, really. There's, I mean, there's got to be all these, just these all, all over the country, there's got to be these amazing artifacts out there, particularly from that time period, uh, from World War One, World War Two, things those guys brought back. Uh, just, yeah, that's incredible. Gosh, amazing, amazing. So you got attention to detail, down in those first couple of years. Like you don't have a choice. You're going to be out there in front of everybody. You're getting an inspection right before you walk out. There's somebody that's looking boom, boom, boom. And you go kind of like a bullpen as you get ready to go out. Uh, so you do that for two years. Does anybody stay like, that seems like high stress. Um, that seems much more stressful to me than going into Ramadi at the height of the war. I would much rather like rock, like head into town and do that. than have to have my uniform immaculate and walk out in front of a bunch of people. Like that's terrifying to me. Um, which is probably why I ended up in the SEAL teams where I did. Um, but, uh, that's a lot of stress. And does anybody stay there for six years, seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years, and do that for, I don't know what, until retirement or how, how to, is everybody now, different? I think the average, the average tomb guard lasts two to three years because yeah. it's not only, not only challenging mentally because of all the attention to detail and just being, I mean, it's a lot of time invested as well, but it's physically challenging just to stand there and click your heels together. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't want to ever like make it seem like it's physical as compared to special operations but it's just a different type of physical yeah. stress because it, it it's, I mean, you learn very quickly how to deal and manage with standing still in, in austere environments. I mean, you're, I, I sweat profusely <laughs> and I sweat and that stuck in my face and mosquitoes and, and it was very distracting, but very physically uh, distressing. And I think the average is probably two to three years, which gets you about, uh, 500 to 1,000 walks. I think before I left the tomb, I had 750 walks at the Tomb of the Unknowns. Jeez. And then guard a few hundred times, uh, you know, acting as the sergeant of the guard. I made E5 when I was 20. And then, you know, was very young as a sergeant uh, in the infantry. Uh, and then changed the guard for the rest of my time there before I went to selection. Jeez, that's, it's stressing me out just talking about that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so then you go to selection, you put in, you put in your papers, you do that kind of a tryout probably like we did a push up, sit ups, run just to, to get into selection, uh, or to qualify to get in. And then do you go right to Q course? Like you just show up head to head from DC to brag and, uh, and start, start the Q course. Is that how that works? Yeah, essentially. I mean, I got TDY 
I, I traveled to brag, went to selection. I was successful at selection. I, I came back um, and then got a Q course date and started the Q course. I think I started the Q course in 02. Um, and that's a, you know, depending on the MOS, the job specialty, you, it's a two to three year journey. So my journey in training began right there. And what was your MOS? Did you know you know ahead of time what you're going to be? If you're going to be like a weapon sergeant, or you're going to be comms or intel or whatever. What's interesting is, uh, and I, I've told this story on on online or social before, is you, you get an order of merit based on what you want, but you know needs in the army are going to point you in the right direction. So you have a weapon specialist, communication specialist, uh, engineer specialist, and then a medical specialist. And I only wanted to be a 18 Bravo, which is a special forces weapons specialist. And, you know, that's weapons, that's tactics. Even though I was in the old guard, I was airborne ranger qualified. I had experience in the infantry. And so they, they made me a combo guy, but, but here's what they did back then. Everything wasn't digital. It was on, it was on orders. And I remember standing in line and, I had my orders in front of me and they said they had just given us our orders and I'm in formation and they hand us our orders and, and you're reporting to your 18 series uh, specialty and you're linking up with the guy who's going to be in charge of your destination. And back then I was, you know, I was 22 years old. I was young and dumb. And I looked at my orders and said 18 E. And so I looked down and it was like, there's no way, man. I cannot be a, a combo guy. There's no way. So I took a pin and I changed the E to a B. No I, way. I, I, I straight up would just wrote two, like everywhere it said 18 echo, I just wrote Bs because there was no like identification for uh, translating like, a, like a, uh, a specialty assigned to a number in a computer. And so I knew that. So it was just like a, you show up and then they see it. And so I was standing in line and I was nervous because I was like, man, I don't want to get in trouble, but like, this is my destiny forever. <laughs> and I was like, I can't be a combo guy. So I, <laughs> I came to guy my orders and I'm in a line with 18 Bravos, like seven of us. And he takes my orders and he looks at it and he goes, okay. And he looks at his list on the board and my name's not there. And then he looks at the orders and then he looks at the name on the board and he goes, huh? He goes, you're not on my list. And I was like, I don't know, sir. Not, I'm not sure what, you know, I don't just playing like, I don't know. And he goes, ah, and he just writes my name on the board and hands me back my orders That's and tells me to fine. So I'm sitting there for 72 hours thinking, man, are they going to figure it out and then move me into an 18 echo slot? And they never do. I mean, wow. they, they and, and I know the speed of the army and how they're navigating things because war just kicked off, right? We're, we're in the middle when I reported, we were in the middle of the Afghan campaign, in the middle of the Q course, uh, uh, about the middle of training, we're in the Iraqi campaign. So the priority was war. And I know these guys don't care, man. This is a, this is a garrison army evolving into a wartime army. And they're just getting war fighters uh, kicked out of the Q course. Not kicked out bad way, but kicked them uh, out down the road so they can go to war. Yeah. And so... I, I changed my destiny right then and there and became a, a special forces weapons guy. 
for the rest of my career. Dude, I love that. I gotta use that in a. I gotta use that in a novel. That's fantastic. <laughs> I did not know that. That's amazing. I love it because I got because we go through training all all together. You're six months of buds, and then you go to your have our three months at the time anyway of uh, SEAL qualification training. Now it's like another six months for a year, but, uh, you don't know what you're going to do until you get to your team, at least back then. And of course I want to be a point man. You know, I want the same thing. I want to be weapons point man. I'd read all these Vietnam books here. Point man is where I want to be. And, uh, they're like, you know, they have a conversation with your chief and, uh, he's like, Oh, you seem semi-intelligent comms. I'm like, what? Oh man, that's the guy that gets shot next to the Lieutenant in all those Vietnam movies I grew up watching. Like you have the big antenna and that's, that's like the first guy to go. I'm like, son of a bitch. But, uh, so I went to comm school, uh, but then you're, you're all doing the same things I and mean, you're all, you're all shooting and doing all the other stuff together, but then you have the specialty, you know, but medic or, you know, whatever you're going to, you're going to do. Um, and it actually ended up working out well for me in that once I became an officer, I knew the comm side of mission planning. So I knew that sort of thing and I could help the radio, I could help the new comm guys as, as a new officer i could help him with the radios so he's not the only guy running around going to fix things or whatever like i could take care of my own stuff i didn't have to be like my radio's not working uh hey can somebody come on help me like i knew how to do it myself you know and i could make those comm shots i knew about the hf shots even though we didn't really do that sort of thing anymore once the war kicked off anyway in my in my experience but uh that is awesome so everybody so you're in you go weapons somebody else is going comms uh somebody else the engineers are going to blow up stuff so you're doing that separately but under that special forces uh, uh, uh special warfare training center umbrella and you all do your separate things, which are different amounts of time. And then you come back together, depending, not maybe not the same people because different different courses are different lengths, uh, but you come back with a group and then you go to Robin Sage or you do some other things before you do language. Is that how that, that works? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the you you basically go out and you, you do a small unit tactics, at least when I went through, and you get a baseline for um, understanding how to shoot, move, communicate in the wood line. So patrolling, FM7-8, basic patrolling and, and small unit tactics, understand how to how to do raids, ambushes. And, you know, as a ranger qualified infantry guy, even though I was young, I was put in a leadership position because um, you're running a whole bunch of guys from varied backgrounds. I mean, the cool thing about Special Forces, the Green Berets, I think, is a lot of people have different experiences and backgrounds, which makes them really cool as an asset where you might have an 18 Delta who was a paramedic. You might even have an 18 Delta who was a medical doctor. And these people are, are going out to get their specialty training and then coming back together again to culminate in Robin Sage, which I think is our, our specialty, which is unconventional warfare, this, this fake uh, um, you know, culmination exercise in this scenario-based world, um, uh, which is called Pineland. And in Pineland, you know, it's which is based in uh, Rockingham, North Carolina, at, you know, the Appalachians. Uh, it was really cool as an experience because you jump in, you train an auxiliary force, you you mentor, you assist, advise, and then you go conduct operations. It was it was a the true Green Beret mission, and I felt like I got set up for success there. After that, you go to survival school. You have to go to SEER, uh, high risk level C which is for special operations and, and aviators. And then uh, you go to language school. And my language at the time was was French because our AOR, our area of operation, was Africa. Uh, even though I, I, even in third group, I, didn't, I never went to Africa. I went to <laughs> so Rotation. you know where you're going at this point. When, when, at what point do you find out what, uh, what group you're going to? 
right before you go to language school, they identify what group you're going to go to. Okay. And the only group I wanted to go to at the time was uh, third or fifth because I heard they were in the middle of war. So they were war fighting. And I knew that if I had third or fifth, there was a high probability I was going straight to war out of the Q course. And, and I did, you know, we, we did, but I was, uh, I always thought it was funny because I could read and write Korean because I'm half Korean, but I was a, you know, a Korean guy, you know, speaking French operating in the middle East and, and had no like synergy and lining those things up. But that's the way of the academic world and special operations. Yeah. That's the military in general, like same thing. Uh, you know, yeah, native Spanish speaker. Okay. Boom, boom. Okay. You're going to, you know, wherever a place where they don't speak Spanish, that's probably where you're going to go. And we're going to give you a language that's not Spanish. Like that's, it's just crazy. You know, you should have been going probably to first group, uh, you know, <laughs> and head, head in that direction. But, uh, but no, it's the military, which is fantastic. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge bureaucracy and it is, that's just how it's been since the beginning of time. It's classic. There's a reason that these, you know, stereotypes about the military exist. And that's, that's a reason, you know, right there, just data point, you know, crazy. Uh, and your seer, was your seer on brag? Is that, uh, is that one on brag? Yes. I, I went to the Camp McCall and then, um, it was ran by work, the special warfare center. So it, it's a, I think a different experience than the air force version of it. Um, but it was a great experience. It was, uh, you know, they call it camp slappy. Yep. Like when you go, <laughs> you learn about education, uh, super interesting experience and, and, and something I think that's set me up for success for war. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it'd be interesting to see if they've morphed any of that over time. Cause mine was definitely based on the Vietnam experience. Um, when yeah. I went through in 98 or whenever I went to, went to Sears school. Um, but yeah, definitely built tap codes and, and all the rest of it. Definitely Vietnam. And then I went to a more advanced one that was a pilot course even before nine 11, but it was kind of like, Hey, if you're snatched off the street in Lebanon, like this, what, what's there and you're thrown in front of a camera then or, or whatever else, you know, the, and it worked all those things in that didn't necessarily, they, they didn't really cover in the, the more classic type post or Vietnam era seer school. That was my original experience. But, um, and so then, so you go to, you go to third group and off you go down range. Like, do you, yeah. have, do you have a workup? Do you have like a year long workup or how does it, how did, how did, no, you just get thrown in the mix. Yeah. Well, when I, when I arrived, I, I kind of pinpointed the battalion I wanted to go to and second battalion, third special forces group was going to war. And I, I started assimilating and getting ready but we were already on the, I mean, they were already sending guys over on Advon advancing to, to pre-stage for war. So uh, this time was, this time was about 04, 05 period and it was super active in fire bases and remote places on the Pakistan border at the time. And so I, I hit the ground and I think I probably spent two weeks on the ground, two weeks at Bragg in third group before I was on a plane headed over to war. Wow. So. Were you taking somebody's place and that they'd worked up together or were you just, uh, you know, just throwing it, like, get out there. We need more guys out here in these outstations or wherever you went. So my first team was a mountain team in third special forces group. And my seat, you know, they run a senior junior per MOS on a, on a Green Beret uh, operational attachment. And my senior had just went in and got surgery for an injury and sustained on a rotation before that one in Afghanistan. So immediately um, when I hit the ground, they're like, "Hey, your senior's gone, so you're the senior, and we need it. We need you to uh, be downrange." And so I immediately went. Like when I reported to my team room, half of my team was already downrange, setting up the firebase. Okay. When I hit the ground in Afghanistan, 
the uh, burden of responsibility was pretty overbearing because there was nobody else. It was like hit the ground running and learn uh, on the way. So it, it happened rapidly. And that, that rotation, I was there when, uh, um, uh, uh still team 10, uh, lost uh, an aircraft and, and lost. Red wings. Yeah. In fact, uh, my company, I was on the, or that, and then my company, uh, the scuba team and one of our ruck teams went in to uh, rescue Marcus Luttrell with the range battalion, um, in the village, there was obviously a, a components to that, but operation red wings is what it's historically known as. I was on an airfield, um, waiting to recover, um, you know, whether it was bodies or recovering um, uh, good guys off the battlefield, we, we are in a capacity with MH-47s to be able to respond. Um, and that rotation was a nine-month rotation for me in a remote fire base, uh, in a fire base called Naray, which for, at the time was the furthest northern fire base above Asadabad and Jalalabad, which was on the Pakistan border. Jeez. And then you come, you, that's, that's a long, that's, well, that's baptism by fire, nine months on the Paki border, like that's that's no joke right there. So you come back nine months. That's your first. That's your first real deployment. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, first first time to war and um, was a super eye opening experience. I learned a ton, and then you know, in the cycle that is war at that time period, and you know this, um, there wasn't a lot of time off. I mean, I got back. I think I went to a school. Uh, like one of our advanced CQB schools, like a couple of weeks after I hit the ground. Nice. Sephardic, is that the one? Sephardic, yeah. Nice. I, went to Sep- I always right wanted to go the- there. I always put in for that. They never let, they never got to, I put in for Ranger School. I put in for Sephardic. I put in for all these things. And I was like, E3, 45. I just wanted to, you know, just get get those, those that experience. That was all, you know, pre-September 11th. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they never, never let me go. So. Oh well, oh well. But you do Sephardic, so you're now you're now you're rocking and rolling CQB, and then right back into the mix. Right back uh, to Iraq. Um, I, I went back to Iraq, or went straight to Iraq. After that, I got a couple of weeks of time off right before um, we deployed, and then was was operating. Um, I I I I, rare, I got an opportunity that was pretty rare in my community, which is. I got to move over to the SIF company, the Commanders and Extremist Company, which is now called the Commanders Response Force Company, which now technically is in, in limbo because they're thinking about making them uh, deep underground companies for for, for different uh, underground tunnel systems. Huh. But um, you had to have two years of team time. You had to have Sephardic, and you had to come recommended from your detachment and your company, Sergeant Major. And I was in Charlie Company, 2nd Battalion, and my sergeant major went to become the SIFT sergeant major after our rotation, and he vouched for me. In fact, he requested me and a couple other guys from the company, so I just moved next door from Charlie Company to Bravo Company, which put me in the, the, um, the slot to go immediately downrange. And, you know, they asked me, they said, Mike, you know, you're going to have to deploy, like, immediately – and they had no time off. I'm like, that's what I was there for. So I was more than excited and moved over to the SIF company after Sephardic and went straight to war with the SIF. Oh, wow. Uh, did that in Iraq uh, in 05, 06, 07, 08, um, and, and did three right back-to-back rotations to Iraq with the commanders and extremist force. No way. Yeah, so I, I went into to Haiti in 
2004 with Charlie Third of the Seventh. Um, so I was like the seal liaison with those guys, but that was a really cool experience because, you know, I'm at home, uh, on the couch on a Friday and I get a call and I thought I was in trouble for like something. Uh, and they called me back in. I'm like, Oh, Oh man. So I go back in and, uh, they're like, all right, you're going, you know, you're going down to wherever we staged from. I forget where it was. Cause we, we tried to get in one place with a bird and then had a problem and it, could, it couldn't turn or something. Anyway, so we had some emergency just getting there. But, uh, but yeah, we palletized everything and they threw a bunch of people together and we went down there. Um, but that was my first time seeing uh, Army come together, not just big Army, but with all those other, other assets, but special operations in general, like have nothing, just essentially a tarmac and then put up this crazy command and control center, have all the birds, have the, uh, the SIF company, have everybody working together, having the whole, um, uh, uh, on the floor, the whole rock drills going on with not just, not just you for actions on objective, but all the aircraft and all the supporting assets as well on this huge hangar floor, uh, and then getting the birds and go. Uh, so that was, that was my first time, like seeing that come together from nothing. Cause up to that point I'd gone to a place and it was like it had been already set up. People had been there first. This is my first time going in and seeing how uh, how the army and, and uh, army SF in particular sets everything up like that from zero, and that was really cool to see. And then those rest, some other then deployments that followed. Um, I had experience with army SF, and then uh, and they were all great. And then I had my last two deployments. I had more army SF guys under me as I worked my way kind of up the up the chain or whatever. Um, then I had seals. So in these outstations, I had different ODAs out there um, and always had an amazing experience uh, with those guys. Uh, absolutely loved it. Um, still dear friends with one of the, um, with a few of the guys, but with, uh, with one warrant officer in particular. And hearing the warrant officer program for Army SF, like that's legit. Um, like ours is not good in the Navy, uh, in, in the SEAL teams. Like you don't learn anything uh, counterinsurgency, insurgency, terrorism specific. Like you go there and you learn, I don't know, you learn stuff about being on a ship and what fork to use and all that stuff to try to civilize you for the wardroom or something. But Army SF, Warrant Officer Program, like that is legit. I learned, I've learned a ton from those guys on the, in the academic side of the house as far as warfare, terrorism, insurgencies go. Um, and uh, and that's been, that was, that, those were all great, great experiences. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so for you, you're back in, your three deployments to Iraq and of those, and that's before you went over to uh, to special mission unit type stuff, right? So, of those experience, so now you have four deployments, all of them combat, Afghanistan, three Iraq. Um, what were some of the most formative experience when you look back on that time period? Um, what were some of the most formative experiences that you had downrange? Is there one that sticks out or two that stick out? Yeah, I think you know, oh seven for me historically. Um, was the most significant, but one, it's because of the height of Al Qaeda in Iraq and, and the fact that, um, you know, I was part of Stanley McChrystal's task force 16 at the time, which included, um, uh, SMU's range of battalion, the SIF. And we were going out as action arms operating with one centralized intelligence, um, um, element that was driving these operations against all these HVTs in Iraq. It was crushing their backs, but it was a lot of war fighting. I mean, every action arm as part of Task Force 16, which has changed numbers, obviously, throughout the years. But, you know, McChrystal's, um, I think, ideology was, hey, there's a strategic campaign, but part of that campaign is killing and capturing uh, in a franchise model as many bad guys as possible. And to be part of that 
where every single night, you know, 22 SAS, us, the Ranger Regiment, the SMUs were going out and having significant results in the battlefield that were just, I mean, I remember one time we had, you know, killed an HVT. His predecessor had stood up. We killed him the next night. And then uh, a week later, we had captured the guy who was his predecessor. And he didn't even know he was the predecessor. Like, he hadn't even gotten the word yet. Right. That he was fine to become the, the emir of, of that particular cell because we had the intelligence that was leading, like, hey, he's next in line. We need to roll these guys up. Yeah. So, you know, not only was it um, the most effective war fighting that I've seen, uh, in my own personal experiences, but also as a task force. Uh, but it's also when we lost a, a ton of guys and we were losing guys. Uh, I had a dog save my life uh, and, and bit a suicide bomber about 50 meters in front of me. I had all these things that were happening, but it's a significant moment where I just said, you know, this, this is exactly where I need to be. Uh, we were, we were operating under an SMU at the time. Uh, we were, we were augmenting them. And it was just an incredible experience. And, and it just kind of set me up with the right mindset, the right um, path to, to do SMU time and, and to go to go over, the, you know, across the fence and do some cool stuff um, in, in my own experiences. It motivated me to do that. Yeah, and that was definitely a formative time in, in special operations history, no doubt about it. And you're operating out of the green zone right there, right there with those houses along the, the river. Yeah. So yeah, so that's uh, I was there with the yeah. uh, doing the agency stuff then. So uh, I was right there next door. You had that little airfield right there, you know, with the with the birds and um, so yeah, right there in a line with uh, with SAS with us with you guys. That was a crazy that was a crazy time, and it uh, you know, I didn't look at it at the time this way, but uh, now when I look back on it, well, very formative, obviously, but also laid some of the foundation, particularly for that second novel, for True Believer, where I'm, I'm talking about and fictionalizing, of course, uh, my experience during that time frame right there in those same houses uh, along the river where, where you're talking about. Um, but so, so then you come back, and are you kind of like seeing what's going on with the SMUs at that time and saying, Hey, I want to go, want to go over there. I want to be associated with this group. How can I, uh, how, how, how can I get in? You're talking to those guys. And then, then you go come back from that, that third deployment and move over there. And yep. okay. So I went to selection and then I came back and then, um, I went to a low vis element as part of the SMU and was, a. uh, uh, you know, I, when people say, hey, were you a cool guy in the unit? I don't really know what that means, but I, there's a lot more cooler guys that were in SMU than me. I was in the low biz element that did a whole bunch of technical stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of it was low biz recce uh, in a low biz capacity. Uh, had really cool experiences. I had I got two additional rotations. I got to spearhead uh, with one of the squadrons, um, the re we call it a reinvasion, but we were already there. But you know, reestablishing a base and an opportunity um, with a unit. So I went in 09, went back down, <laughs> went back and spun around and went back to Iraq, and then 10 uh, went back and went to uh, Afghanistan and got to operate in um, uh, Kunduz and Maza Sharif, where we had no eyes on bad guys in that AO. Yeah, uh, in a super impactful rotation to me where. And it was insane. It was it was insane war fighting because we basically hit the hornet's nest when we got there, and it, it was a, a super productive rotation. Um, and I and I realized 
of all the benefits to bear of bringing assets and the, the most highly trained warriors on the planet and, and how it wasn't even a fair fight. I mean, we were, we were just, I mean, dozens of bad guys every night. It was insane. It was, it was awesome. That is wild. So you do that time. And then, uh, was that, is that your last deployment? Yeah. So no. So what happened is, um, I made E8 and I made E8 very young. I made E8 when I was 30 years. I actually made the list when I was 29 on what we call the blacklist, which is the SMU list. Uh, and I was asked guy on the order of merit in 18 series to get promoted to E8. And so at the time I was a young, uh, tech recce guy. And I'm like, man, you know, what do I want to do with my career? Because an E8 in special forces is the top, you know, you're, you're the big dog. You're, you're the team sergeant. And I was 29 years old. I was going to pin when I was 30, but I was a super young, experienced uh, special operations guy. But nobody that I knew at the time was that young of a team sergeant. And at the time, I actually got requested by JSOC to stand up a commanders and extremist for, uh, force for Africa. So <laughs> this hadn't been done yet. I mean, we had commanders and extremist forces for every AOR except for Africa because third special forces group B, known as Bravo company, second battalion, third group B two, three, we were busy in the middle East because we were training, uh, Iraqis and we were, we were going out every night with the premier Iraqi counterterrorism force ICTF. And so they weren't willing to augment B two, three. So they needed to stand up a new unit. So they actually recruit, they asked me and they said, Hey, would you be willing to come out and act as a special forces reconnaissance expert and stand up, uh, help stand up C210, which is the new commander's extremist force. So I flew out to Colorado. I met with a command sergeant major, uh, uh, Bob Irby, who was there. And Bob Irby's a legend. He's like, man, look, what we're going to do is we're going to give you the opportunity to handpick your guys to uh, stand up, uh, your special forces reconnaissance sniper detachment for the recce. And then you'll be the first to operate in Africa. And I'm like, this is too good to be true, but it was, it was true. And they, 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 they gave us the opportunity. They said, these are the parameters and me and another unit member left the unit and stood up that under JSOC's guidance. Um, you know, long story over the course of a year, we, we basically trained this guy, this, uh, this element up, we handpicked our guys, we fired guys, we got them qualified, JSOC qualified us. And then when Benghazi happened, September 11th of 2012, I was actually in the SMU compound doing a cross engagement and that thing kicked off. And then we got the word, we spun up, and then me and two of my guys were the first to rip into Libya to go after, at the time, it, it, this is unclassified now, it was classified at the time, but Abu Qatala, who's the guy responsible for coordinating the attack that killed, you know, Ambassador Stephen Smith and then the two yeah. uh, uh, former Navy SEALs, Glenn Doherty and, and Tyrone yeah. Woods. So um, I think I deployed a couple, a few weeks after that, and we went into the country, stood up a counterterrorism element that was a 12-way program, and went after them. And I spent the, last, the the next six months in Libya running that counterterrorism program and, and looking after those guys. No kidding. That is that is wild. Yeah. Uh, and and what uh, after your your six months there, how close did you get, or did you? What, what was? Is he? 
So you guys that were members of my, we call it Team Libya, positively identified uh, Abu Qatala. Uh, we offered multiple um, courses of action, which were turned down by the, the chief of um, the country team, turned it down. It wasn't the agency. It wasn't, it was the State Department. Uh, at the time, because Ambassador Stevens was killed, they had a, a charge that was in charge temporarily. Uh, his name was uh, Alexander Pope, and he turned it down because of the p- political climate. I mean, verbatim, it said, we are not going to do this because of the political climate. We can't afford it politically. And so we did nothing. Um, that, to me, um, was a very clear indication of my path moving forward in the military. And I came back from that rotation, and I think I was out of the army within the next three weeks. No way. I mean, um, uh, the agency recruited me when I was downrange because I had just finished my in 2012. That same year, I had just finished my bachelor's degree, which is a prerequisite to become a blue badger, a full time employee uh, for OGA. And I, I started the process, and when I got back, I got out to to transition into uh, one still, you know. Uh, nickel and diming my my uh, retirement through the special forces reserve, but also allowing myself to transition to work for OGA full time. No kidding, and that's what you did. So you went through the process. You did the did the polys, did the all that stuff. Did and did you go to the farm at that point? Yeah. So I, so here's what happened is <laughs> I don't know if you remember this time period, but that was the, when the sequester happened. Okay. Yeah, I remember. Left the military three phases into a six phase process and they stopped hiring anybody. And they basically said, they said to me, Hey, you know, we're on a hiring freeze. We're going to see how this unfolds. It was a a highly charged political climate. And so what they said to me um, is, Hey, we can send you down range and you could be a, a, you know, a GRS guy. And and just for your listeners, um, I am very security minded. And I, I had to go to the office to get basically cleared to be able to say that I was a GRS guy. Now, the, 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 the classified elements of that or the details in my relationships, in the program, the program itself, et cetera. But, yeah, I, I, I went as an independent contractor, as a GRS guy, and in the interim and went downrange immediately and started serving all over the world. And when it, when it, when it got cleared up, I had an option and the option was you could go straight um, back to, I mean, I had been to the farm for the programs for the, uh, for the, the job that I was in. Actually, I went through a whole bunch of training, which is more than I thought existed. And um, they said, Hey, uh, we can go ahead and migrate you now. Well, when they went to migrate me, I think it was three or four rotations in and the place that I was located at, I had seen, paramilitary operations officers have a hard time about it. I mean, they had a very difficult, and again, this is a political climate thing. This is not operational. These guys wanted to do their jobs, but because of the political climate, they weren't allowed to do their jobs. So I, I came to a juncture and I said, uh, let me hold off for a bit. And I kind of stalemated and did a few more rotations. I actually, at the time I was in Pakistan with uh, Ryan Owen's brother. And I, I won't say his name because he's still serving. But Ryan Owens was a, uh, a SEAL Team 6 guy that was killed at a hostage rescue. Um, uh, tragically killed, but courageously killed. 
in rescuing a hostage that survived. And when, when he was killed, I was with his brother and I came to a, I call these junctures, right? I came to a crossroad where I had decisions to make. I was, I was at a point where I wanted to have a family, but knew in my OGA work that I would never have a family except for the family that I deployed with. I was coming back from my OGA rotations and immediately rotating at the time as a Sergeant Major, because I got promoted Sergeant Major, I was, I was going to Africa and then coming back and then spending a couple of days home and then going back to Africa or some crap hole in the Middle East. And then I realized I won't have a life. And at that time in Pakistan, this is, you know, with combined war, this is 14, 15 rotations. And I'm like, man, I want to start something different. And the, Rhino, his brother, who was my riding partner in GRS, helped me come up with some ideas. And that's where I started my company, Phil Crasser. That is awesome. Yeah, it's great when you know. Like I knew when I'm back in that last Iraq deployment, I never thought about anything other than training for war, than being the best combat leader I could possibly be. Then I get back from that deployment, take a breath, realize, okay, I'm in 04 now, and uh, this is the last time I'll tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield. Now if I come back, it says eventually after a staff job, you come back as a as a SEAL team commander, which means you're like a SEAL team manager in real life, uh, and you're back there in the talk, and you're allocating assets and things like that, but you're not out there doing the job, kicking the doors with the guys, that sort of thing. So it's very clear, I'm back, taking a breath, family needs me, time to move on. Uh, so it's great when you have that clarity, because most people – waver. Oh, should I get out? Should I not? What am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to get out. Oh, wait, wait, did I make the right decision? Like there's a lot of that that goes on. Uh, I didn't have it because I was very clear in what I was going to do in my path. Uh, it sounds like you were clear also, like you, you, were, you were driving forward and then boom, you know what? It's time. Uh, and then you came up with field yep. craft survival downrange. And is that what you came up with this shirt? By the way, this is my favorite new shirt. Like I have two of them now and, uh, and I love them. I just go from one to the other, but, uh, did you come up with this thing? Because when I saw it first, when, yeah. you, when I got this, I was like, oh, you know, oh, he made a shirt. And then I put it on. I'm like, this thing is awesome. Like, immediately. I love this thing. Like, I don't know what you did. Like, how do you – like, it's just a very odd thing for you. Because, like, I have all this other stuff, which is awesome. You know, my field – I use these things. are amazing. These coasters. I love my field crash. I got my – got this. I got all this stuff. I got my medical stuff here. I'm going to do a little gear deal on it later. Um, but uh, but the shirt was, like, kind of the oh, – like a, like a one-off. It was like, wait, what? He designed an, actu- an awesome shirt? Like how, like what, what did this thing come about? So it, it actually stemmed from my rotation in Pakistan, which, you know, rolling around Pakistan in plain clothes, you need utility built into clothing. And, and utility for most people has to do with the proprietary blend of how it wears and how it looks away moisture, how it keeps you warm, but not utility and like how, how active you could be. And, you know, even, even small details like, the, the length below your waist where you can adequately draw a pistol in clear real estate or even even the, the bottom three buttons, for example, that are snaps where you can pull it away to mm-hmm. get to a, a... Yep. It's amazing. Those little those details are super important to me. And when I decided to do clothing, it, it wasn't haphazardly. Like I've seen a lot of guys make the mistake of like private labeling co- uh, clothing. And, and they don't own the process. They don't own the blend. So when we did this, it was very deliberate. I found a Ralph Lauren designer who's a buddy of mine in New York. We made a proprietary blend, meaning we own the actual blend. Even though proprietary blends are easy to, to skew and, and, and change numbers, it had to fit wick away moisture. 
had it had to be air uh, air light, something that could like breathe on your body. So we owned that, and then we did it from scratch. So the material we sourced, the manufacturing we sourced, which is uh, manufactured in New York, and we wanted to make sure it was done the right way with you know like the even the handcuff key pocket where I would usually keep an ID card because you know like in in that country you could get searched, you could get robbed, and everything that you're possessing could get stripped away from you. But if you have it in the back of your collar, that, that might be the little bit of life-saving mm-hmm. tool to be able to you know extend your lifeline. So we paid attention to that, and that's something that we did, and we're going to continue to do. Like We have a whole line of clothing coming out this year, which includes more shirts, jackets, vests, that all have utility-focused as opposed to just looking good. Which I think they look good as. Yeah, another thing is is awesome. People comment on it all the time, also because it's kind of, it's you know it's niche and it's not you know out there uh, you know in a, on a huge with a huge uh, clothing company or whatever. And you didn't just take something and throw throw Fieldcraft Survival on it. Uh, so I get asked about it all the time. I love it. I'm going to send one to Chris Pratt uh, out and 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 try to get it in, in the series because it, it is awesome. And he has to do some kind of some low vis stuff in the in the series. They're filming it right now, so I'm going to I'm going to uh, see if I can get one of these or a couple of them out there because they need one that like you can put blood on, one that you can cut. You know, one, they need everything like all the weapons everything they need they like five or ten of uh that's just how it works i thought you like got one knife one gun whatever no you get like 10 of these different things uh for different scenes and different angles that do different things some are some are real some are not like all that but uh yeah i'm super fan of uh of the shirt and of what you're doing um so you have the idea downrange and we're gonna wrap this up because i know you gotta go and uh and and uh and we're gonna come back and do this again we're gonna do a part two because i want to ask you uh all about the different schools that you got to go to, the ones you can talk about anyway, uh, particularly any of the driving schools and, and that sort of thing, on-road, off-road, rally racing schools, because I have my eye on going to O'Neill Racing uh, back in New Hampshire. I never got to go to that one. All my friends got to go, and they said that was the, of all the ones we went to, I went to two. I went to BSR and Blackwater. Um, other guys did like ITI. We went to a whole bunch of different ones, and then we had some you know some off-road recovery stuff, different ones over the years, but, um, but I really want to go to O'Neill Racing out in New Hampshire and, uh, and do that, because that seems like it's a fun place and rally racers or just uh, rally drivers seem like some of the best drivers in the world. Yeah, that's the best one. That was out of all the schools I've been to, I've been to O'Neill's three times. That was the funnest one. Man, Cause the, the, the best one to go to is that they do like a, a one week uh, where they put you in front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, all wheel drive. So you can get a different fill, but go to that in the winter time because it'll be covered in snow and then it, the, the challenge of integrating all that stuff together is so super interesting. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think one thing I do have, you know, like I, I don't like to brag about my career because because there's so many more significant people that have done way more than me. But I have a binder this big of certificates of training that I went to because I would never lull in time. I would always seek training. And I think I've been to, besides uh, dive school, because I would drown, <laughs> I'm not a very uh, I've been to every single school, and that would be a super interesting podcast. Would yeah, let's do a part two, uh, hopefully in person, and sit down and talk about all that stuff. Uh, and so all that training now, so you have that idea, uh, downrange, fieldcraft survival. You come back, you get out, and then how long is it before uh, inception and hitting the ground and getting out there, doing your first course? How does that and we'll get back together and talk about all this in in more detail. But um, like people, all of a sudden, you just like pop. Think you just popped up out of nowhere. Well, how, what what was that ramp up to now? Because I've been to the headquarters, 
it is awesome. It's amazing. You have a lot of people working for you doing all these different courses and you have merchandise and you have all this amazing stuff going on. You're working on one of my vehicles. We're going to get this thing uh, all, all set up and get get me. Uh, I've been meaning to do it for a couple of years. It's been a busy couple of years here. Uh, so we're going to get that all done. So you have all that mobility side of the house. Um, so from you got back, how long until you started Fieldcraft Survival and then how long until you do your, your first course? Yeah, so I, I, you know, Philcraft initially, I started my logo design and building out, like I started, you know, and this is a, a testament again, back to the reading component. Like if, if, if you're a deliberate planner and I think special operations, the best tool that they gave me was the ability to constructively organized um, and very deliberately lay out a plan of action, which is a plan that you could execute. I went and I basically did a concept of the operation on every single aspect of my business from, you know, the current situation, the mission statement on how to execute each and every facet of it, starting with a logo. And then I started crushing books on business. I, I didn't know a lot about business and, and looking at back in hindsight, would I see the same people, the same mistakes that people make now where they see entrepreneurs and they're like, oh, I could do this. Like, and, and then they quit like a, a month later. It's because they didn't do their due diligence and homework. I spent the first six months doing that and, and, and getting everything digested and then everything lined out and everything from logo to the company name, the co company structure and EIN. And then I was teaching my first course a couple months after I hit the ground back home. And it started with just me. That quickly scaled over the years to, you know, I have 45 employees right now that work for me. Um, a lot of subcontracted guys that train all over the United States. We have a Heber City uh, office that's also a Sims uh, scenario shoot house kind of thing in the back. We just bought a $120,000 simulator that's a 10-foot, 270-degree simulator that has 800 scenarios. Um, we teach in three to four different states every weekend. Uh, I have another 5,000 square foot with a survival classroom that, has, that we do t-shirt manufacturing. Um, we do, um, we have a leather shop. We have a whole bunch of cool niches. I have 2,500 acres right down the road, 45 minutes from here, where we're going to be doing overland training, survival training, long range shooting. So it, it's, it's it scaled rapidly from where it was to where we are now, but the entire intent for us is to train civilians. Like when I, when I came back from military experience, I realized there's not a lot outside of tactical training, which is a niche of preparedness training, there's not a lot for civilians. It, it, even getting mindset or the understanding of kind of like a lifestyle of preparedness, which we lived, there's not a, a correlation or a, a way to map that. So I started Fieldcraft with that intent. Uh, I don't focus on military. I don't focus on law enforcement, even though I'll always give them my attention. My main focus is taking civilians, which is um, every single person on this planet, and giving them the opportunity to kind of look at preparedness and go, Hey, maybe that's something I should pay attention to. Um, I, I think we live in a volatile world where, you know, we had a shooting, for example, in Boulder, Colorado on Monday. Tragedy, right? And people often go look at that tragedy and go, oh, man, that sucks. Sucks for those people. Prayers to those people. And I get that. But it's like if, if we were in the military, we would look at that and go, hey, what are the lessons learned and how we could be better prepared to be able to not be victims or better respond as first responders to to make sure that we're not victims. Um, I like to look at it that way and find in tragedy the way that we can get a lesson learned in improving our, our quality of life 
And, and that that is our mission set from the very beginning of, of Billcraft. Oh man, that's yeah, that's a, I mean, yeah, anything in life, you want to take those lessons and apply them going forward. When I launched my last book, Savage Son, it was April April twelfth of last year. Kind of the height of uncertainty as far as health wise, we didn't really know what this was going to do. Job wise, finances, uh, parents, grandparents, like it was a very uncertain time. So as I launched, I was talking more often than not about being prepared and not just being prepared, but hey, making notes right now. If you didn't feel prepared going into last February, last March, not April, while identifying those things and then acting on them. So it's not enough just to be like, oh, you know, we were worried there for a while that there wasn't going to be any food in the grocery store. Uh, and oh, phew, now there's food in the grocery store again. Okay. Uh, well, instead, okay, that's why I don't have that worry. Let's take that and apply it going forward and make sure that we have some food put away. Uh, what else? So what if uh, I called 911 for a, uh, a fire and no one was there to answer? Oh, do we have fire extinguishers in the house? Uh, do I know how to use them? Do they even work anymore? Do the kids know how to use them? Does the babysitter know how to use them? Like all those things, but not just identifying them, taking action on them. So that's what I talked a lot about as uh, last April. And now I'm talking about it a lot again this time as I launch this next book, Devil's Hand, um, because now we've come full circle and we have those lessons of the last year. Uh, and then from the kids' perspective, last year, they could look at their parents in the kitchen. They're going to hear things. Like they might be look like they're playing video games or they're in their room or whatever, but they're listening and they're keying off this body language. And they're saying, hey, your mom and dad, uh, they're worried about something. What are they worried about? Oh, I hear this whisper. They're talking about, oh, maybe dad's not going to have a job. Mom's not going to have a job tomorrow because we don't know about this virus. Uh, oh, now they're talking about food in the grocery store. Am I going to have any food to eat? So even if you were in that situation, you can flip that around and you can have that active conversation, be like, hey, you know what? We weren't as prepared as we could have been, but you know what we're going to do this next the next time as soon as we possibly can? We're going to fix that. We're going to apply these lessons. And look what we have now. Look, we have water. We have something to filter the water in case, uh, you know, I turn this faucet on and it's coming out all brown or whatever. Um, here, here's a way to make fire in the backyard. Here's our fire extinguisher. Like all these things. And the kids are part of that rather than just uh, kind of on the outskirts, just worried about it. So even you could, if you weren't prepared, you could turn that into a positive last year and this year. So now it's just important to do things like contact you, get on that website, which is fieldcraftsurvival.com. Uh, and you can look at all those different courses. There's a, there's, I think there's on there, uh, the training, uh, there's the, there's the products side of the house. There's a whole lot for people to explore. So if they weren't feeling as prepared as they could have been, or they were worried about certain things over this last year, once again, we have what, 7 million background checks over the last year, 2 million this last January alone. Well, guess what? Once you have that, if you're a new gun owner, uh, or maybe you're an old gun owner that doesn't have the, doesn't have the training, it's now it's time to put in the requisite mat time, get put in that ring time, put in the time training, uh, and not just the static static range type training, but all those other things that you offer as well so that people know their capabilities and their limitations with their chosen weapon systems you know, that they incorporate into their lifestyle. So I think what you're doing is, uh, is absolutely incredible. I'm so glad you're here just down the street from me here in Utah is amazing. So um, where else can people go to find out? Website, Mike.a.glover on Instagram, plus the Fieldcraft Survival, Fieldcraft Survival HQ, Fieldcraft Mobility, Fieldcraft Fit. There's a whole litany of, uh, of Fieldcraft things that people can can follow on Instagram, and I highly encourage everybody to to follow all of those. Um, but where else can people? What else do you tell people when they're they're interested in reaching out or starting down this path of preparedness? Where should they Where should they start? Well, I think um, just just as you started a podcast, I think the best form of education for us is the audible long form version uh, as well as video. So I would point people to, uh, you know, go to go and select podcasts and choices 
that are good for you. Uh, the Philcraft Survival Podcast is an option. We're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on the big platforms. But we do we release two podcasts every single week on everything that's preparedness. I would also advocate for YouTube as well because we do video a lot of video content. That if you go back from the very to the very beginning, which is years ago, you know we have three hundred plus thousand subscribers on YouTube, so a lot of people pay, are paying attention. I would advocate to start there as a start point. Get your family involved, watch videos, listen to education, and if it's something that you think uh, you would find value in adding to your life, then hit us up at fieldcraftsurvival.com. Awesome. Awesome, brother. Dude, thank you so much for taking all this time with me today. I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, and we'll do it again soon. We'll get back together in person. And hopefully here at the end of April, we'll we'll sit down together and do an event down at uh, Philcraft Survival World Headquarters in Heber. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. It's an honor and privilege. I love your podcast and I love the fact that you're doing this. Uh, look forward to, to being on uh, more and, and especially on uh, seeing you for a devil's hand at, at Philcraft HQ. It's going to be awesome. Awesome, brother. Well, thanks again, and we'll, uh, we'll get together soon. Let's talk about some gear. Uh, I'm a gear person and have been my whole life before the military, during the military, after the military. Uh, I use it in my books to develop characters because what I see somebody using and how they're using it tells me a lot about that person in real life. So that cherry's right over into my novels. So I want to talk about some Fieldcraft survival uh, gear today. So if you want to learn about mobility, want to learn about firearms, uh, medical, uh, all those things that make us more self-reliant citizens, well, Fieldcraft survival is your place. Check them out. And I love this shirt. So this is my new favorite shirt right here. Uh, Mike designed this thing. Um, and I'm not one to get too excited about shirts, but uh, this thing is legit. And uh, you'll have to actually get one to know what I'm talking about. But check this out. Fieldcraft Survival. Mike designed it. Uh, hit that website. And they tourniquets, uh, tourniquet holders. They have all sorts of stuff. I love the leather work they're doing over there. You can see that. So got my notebook here. The coasters are awesome. Uh, and they have packages, different kind of, of packages for uh, medical supplies. So I have this, a few of these actually, backpack, car, uh, scattered about. So I have these, little EDC carrier thing right there. Uh, and then this, this right here for the back seat in your car. Um, this is awesome to organize things. So this goes in the back of your car. Uh, Velcro, so you can grab one of these things, take it off. I think this one's, I put some binos. I put some, what did I put in here? You put different things in here. Um, I have my, oh, that's pretty good. Got my SIG binos in there. So those are always at the ready. Um, got a tourniquet that's ready to rock. Uh, got another med kit in here. Uh, bam, yeah, I got space blankets in here. Uh, so you can do anything with this. So this is legit bigger, a lot of bigger package down here with a more robust med kit for your vehicle. Uh, and what's great about this is it's super easy to get off the back of your car seat right here. So it goes behind the driver or passenger and you can take this thing and it turns in to a backpack. So it can get away from your car. You can bail out and you have all the things that you need uh, to survive as you, uh, as you, depart that vehicle. So, uh, bam, check that out. Fieldcraft survival and check them out on YouTube. Also a lot of videos that talk about all these different things, uh, about their courses. And most importantly, other than having these things is training 
with these things, uh, knowing how to use them, and not just you, but for your family. So can't recommend Fieldcraft Survival enough. Great people over there. And I'll be taking some courses as well because these skills are perishable. So thank you for joining me. Until the next time, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.